Um, I'm so thankful to be here to be able to speak tonight. Um, Rachel said it, and I know Taylor says it often, but um, it's true that you could be anywhere else you're here. Um, and that's a really cool thing that we get to come together. Um, we've been in our series, uh, Forever Changed, and um, I've loved kind of how we've progressed through that series, but I guess I'm going to do it maybe a little differently tonight. It's still going to go along with the theme. It's just not going to be, I guess, put together um, the same as some of the other sermons. But um, in our lives, we have salvation and then we have sanctification. And a lot of people don't necessarily know the difference, but they're different things. Salvation is when the Lord opens your heart, when you go from darkness to light, um, when, he, when he gives you his love and his mercy, and, and you have that experience. Some people, um, you know, when you were saved, you know where you were, you know who you were with, what you were doing, the date, the time of day, you know everything. It, you know, if you're like me, maybe you don't know a specific time. Maybe you know maybe a time range where you could say, okay, here I know I wasn't, here I know I was, it was somewhere in there. Um, but that's something that happens, and it, you don't lose that. If you have it, you have it. Um, but sanctification is a little different because sanctification is a lifelong process. It's kind of the idea of God changing you one little bit at a time. You may not see it, but it's kind of like those of you that have kids, you know, you can't tell from one day to another how your child has grown. But you can, you know, if they're 10 years old, you can look at a picture of them when they were five. You can see that they don't look the same. They're different. Um, and that's what sanctification is. And we all have this. If we have a relationship with Christ, he is continuously sanctifying us, um, even through our mistakes, through the things that we mess up. And so I'm going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, um, and I'm going to go through this, and we're going to look at what I think was Paul explaining part of his sanctification process. Um, and, and I'll go into that. But starting in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So in verse 5, he, he says he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. He starts listing off who he appears to post-resurrection. And this may not seem important at first, but I'm going to explain why it's relevant. So Cephas, which is also Peter, the apostle Peter, and then to the rest of, or the disciple Peter, to the rest of the disciples after that. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Now in Mark, I believe it's Mark 16, 6 through 8, um, this is when the three women enter the tomb. They see that Jesus is not there, and the angel says to them, he's not here, he's risen. But go and tell the disciples he is going before you to Galilee. So they gather the disciples, the disciples go to Galilee, and in Matthew 28, 16 and 17, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So when it says he appeared to more than 500 brothers of one, at one time, if you remember many different times through Jesus' ministry, um, there were crowds following him, usually in a number of around 500. And that's most likely what this is. And if you think about it, when the disciples would have heard that Jesus had risen, he was going to Galilee, they were supposed to meet him there, 
they would not have just gone and kept quiet about it. They would have told anybody that could hear. And most likely that around 500, that crowd of around 500, would have still been around somewhere. So a lot of those would have heard about this quickly. They would have met there. But the disciples who had seen Jesus in the flesh after the resurrection, they would not have doubted him, as it says in Matthew 28, 16, 17. So most likely some of the ones who doubted were part of that 500. That's just to tell you where that comes from, okay? And it says, 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. Um, when he says, as to one untimely born, I have ESV, it says untimely in the NIV, it says abnormally born. In the King James, it says born out of due time. So essentially, what he's saying is that he appeared to Paul in what seemed like not the right time or in not the right way. And there's several different explanations for this, but the first would be that if you think about all of the apostles, most of them were with Jesus his entire ministry. So they had that time to be mentored by him, be discipled by him, and then once he was resurrected and he ascended, they had been preparing, or he had been preparing them to go out and carry out the ministry. Paul was saved on the road to Damascus and then is just thrown into the fire. There's no training, there's no mentorship. He's just kind of like, okay, here you are, go. That's part of what he's saying. And the word that he actually uses in the Greek for untimely born is ektroma, which, and I don't know if I said that right, but when you translate that literally, it translates to an aborted birth, or it was also the word used to describe a stillborn birth. So what he could also be saying there is from the time that he was born, he was completely dead inside. He was so out of touch with anything that had to do with God, that there was, there was no way he could undo the wickedness that was in his heart. And so look at what he says. He says, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. We see in Acts 1, Jesus ascends to heaven. That's the great commission. And then in Acts 7, we see the stoning of Stephen. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, it says that as they were stoning Stephen, they laid their garments at the foot of a man named Saul, later to become Paul. And that was a sign of respect or a sign of obedience, saying, you're our leader, we're doing this for you. So it wasn't like he was one of the crowd. He was the guy, okay? He was the one everybody was following. He was the one in charge. And on top of that, if we look at that, he's converted a chapter later on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, but remember, Jesus ascended in Acts 1. So he never saw Christ post-resurrection, and that was actually one of the requirements for being an apostle. So when he says, unworthy of being an apostle because I persecuted the church, he's actually literally unworthy. He doesn't meet the requirements. So it really looks like he's, he's kind of throwing this woe is me pity party because... You know, he's, 
He's a terrible guy. I promise, any, anything that any of us have done in this room, Paul did worse. I can promise you, okay? You can beat yourself up all you want to. I do it a lot, but Paul was worse, I promise. And that's kind of what he's saying here, but his forever changed moment came in verse 10. And I hope this gives you goosebumps because every time I read this, it gives me goosebumps. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. I'm going to read that again. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. So he's all these things. He is, he is unworthy. He is undeserving. I, I see a lot of people who, I hear a lot of people say it, or maybe they'll put it on social media, they put it on blogs, whatever, and it, they'll say, you know, I am worthy, I am deserving. No, we're not. Anyone who tells you that is lying to you. You know, we're worthy of hell. That's it. That's all we deserve. We don't deserve God's favor. We don't deserve his love. We don't deserve his grace. We deserve eternal separation, and that's it. Paul realizes this, but what he also realizes, he doesn't get stuck in how unworthy he is because that's what a lot of us do, and that's why we beat ourselves up, and that's why we get stuck in the past with what could have, should have, would have been, but we messed it up, and we did this, we did that, because we stopped there, what he also realized was that Christ was worthy and is worthy, and Christ's worthiness takes the place of our unworthiness. That was his forever changed moment when he took that extra step as to say, there is nothing I can do to undo what Christ did. Because we do that a lot of times. We think to ourselves, well, but I did this, so I don't know if he's really going to take care of That's pride. That's really what that is. Let's be honest. We may not think of it that way. That's arrogance. We don't have enough power to mess up what Jesus did. We can't do that. There is nothing we can do to do that. But we think that way, and that's why we end up so stuck in the past, and we lose sleep over it, and we beat ourselves up over it. And I'm, I promise I'm the world's worst, but we've got to get here. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So he realizes this, and he's, he, he goes out on a mission. He's got tunnel vision. He's spreading the gospel. He's being persecuted, being beaten. He's put in prison. I mean, people are taking shots at his reputation. Everything's happening. And he endures all of this not because oh, if he does this, then he'll find favor with God. He understands he could never do anything to find favor with God. But God gave him his favor anyways. Not because he was deserving, but just because God decided to show him grace. Have you ever thought about why God shows us grace? Like there's nothing we can do to, to earn that, but he does it anyways. It, it, I can't comprehend it. It doesn't make sense to me. But it doesn't have to because he does it anyways. And he works harder, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He works harder because he knows he doesn't have to try to earn this, that grace. He's got it, and he's free now. These things that we struggle with, whether it be the past, whether it be sins that we struggle with that are continuously eating away at us, if we understand this, 
what kind of grip does it have on us? That doesn't mean we won't struggle with it. Don't get me wrong. But what kind of claim does it have on our lives now? What can it honestly say to us that can slow us down? Because we have a hope now. We're not in bondage to our sin. Scripture says that when God calls us, when God saves us, he breaks those chains. So what's holding us back? Honestly, what, what keeps us in that state of mind where I've done, you know, I've done ABC, so I'm not worthy to carry out the gospel? No, you're not, but Jesus is, and his worthiness takes the place of your unworthiness. And there's nothing you can do to mess that up. And so I think this is really short. That's okay. I just think when we get stuck in that mindset of our past is holding us back, we need to hold on and and grip even tighter the promise that our past is the past, but Jesus is right now and Jesus is the future. And we don't have to be defined by that. We can't undo it. Sin is sin. If it's wrong, it's wrong. But it's, it's done. And Jesus took care of it. And we're not stuck in that anymore. We need to move forward and we need to go because we have the freedom to do that. So I'm going to pray for us real quick.